and welcome to Probable Causation, a show about law, economics, and crime. I'm your host, Jennifer Doliak of Texas A&M University, where I'm an economics professor and the director of the Justice Tech Lab. My guest this week is Jamian Cunningham. Jamian is an assistant professor of economics at the University of Memphis. Jamian, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Today, we're going to talk about your research on legal services for the poor and the effects that broadening access to legal services had on families beginning in the 1960s. But before we get into that, could you tell us about your research expertise and how you became interested in this topic? Yeah, I I consider myself an applied economist with a research interest in economics of law and crime. And a lot of my research focuses on the 1960s. But in general, I kind of do research on institutional discrimination, access to social justice, crime and criminal justice, and how these things relate to race and economic inequality. So I would say like that I came up with these topics for the things that I do research on, basically just on my growing up, my interactions with peers and and as well as the police uh, as a youth. Like I noticed that a lot of my friends and I share like very similar experiences with police and the criminal justice system, regardless of our criminal activity or lack thereof. So I always kind of had it in my mind, like criminal justice or crime in general is kind of how we deal with crime is playing a role in some of these economic inequalities that that we see and may be exacerbating some of these uh, gaps that we see. And so I always thought I would do kind of research on some like these institutions and how they may influence some of the outcomes that we care about. Haven't quite got to some of that stuff yet, played around with it, but it kind of led me to like stuff related to the 1960s in general. So your paper is titled Changes in Family Structure and Welfare Participation Since the 1960s, The Role of Legal Services. And it's co-authored with Andrew Goodman-Bacon. So let's start with the, the historical context here. Tell us about the Legal Services Program. How did it come about and what did it do? Well, the Legal Service Program is a public provision and as part of the war on poverty to provide the poor free lawyers for individual representation in civil matters such as uh, divorce, tenant landlord disputes, access to welfare and welfare fraud, and fair hearing cases. Uh, the, the, these lawyers also uh, provided free group representation to community organizations that were serving the interests of the poor. The development of the program, um, the legal services, right, came from uh, two lawyers, an interracial couple, Gene and Edgar Kahn, in which they called for the incorporation of the civilian perspective, like so poetic, uh, into the war on poverty. And in their eyes and the viewpoints of many of the advocates at the time, like legal services would have this huge impact on the daily livelihoods of those individuals living in poverty by using the judicial system to give voice to uh, those who were deemed as previously unheard. And so, the idea was to establish a universally affiliated neighborhood law firm in poor communities. And these law firms would serve as a liaison or intermediary between the poor and the institutions they navigated through on a regular basis. And so basically what was done as part of the war on poverty, federal grants went to local community-based organizations who were interested in starting a neighborhood law firm in poor communities. And these law firms often had non-traditional hours operations. They provided means of transportation. They even went door to door to solicit services. right? And so this is a very interesting setup in the sense that before this program and generally to today, like the poor seems like they're victimized by the judicial system. And the goal here was to empower the poor through the judicial system by providing them um, a means of rep- representation. 
And this is also new because this is happening during a time where the states are now being required to provide legal representation. And what does that mean? And so you have all of these things happen in the judicial framework about how individuals are receiving representation. So this was part of the war on poverty. How did LSPs roll out across the country? In other words, what determined which communities set up this type of program? Well, in theory, any organization could apply for a war on poverty grant or a neighborhood legal service uh, program grant. The decision of who received the grant was based on regional Office of Economic Opportunity Office in concerts with the local bar association and community action agencies. Community action agencies were the basically the overseers or provided oversight for all of the uh, experimental programs from the war on poverty. But in general, there was no guidelines. This was a new program, it was an experimental program. And basically the goal was to fund as many places as possible while there was political capital for the program in the sense that not only did you have the federal government on board to provide funding, but you also had the backing of the American Bar Association. And there was a lot of back and forth of the negotiation to get that support from the American Bar Association. So as soon as you got support in 1965 from American Bar Association, they tried to roll out this program overnight. So basically two things happened. Any previous legal aid society that would adopt the principles of legal services, basically providing legal aid with no restrictions on the type of cases um, that they would take on, got a grant if they applied for a grant. Secondly, local community-based organizations worked with lawyers, law firms, and law schools to establish law firms, local law firms or neighborhood law firms, and to apply for grants. So basically over a short time period, almost every major city received at least one neighborhood legal service program at some point. And this is important, although they're, they're building upon existing legal aid, they're basically providing new services um, in the sense that, A, um, these law firms are located in poor communities, which previously wasn't the case. B, there was no restrictions on a type of cases, controversial cases, or things that we're going to talk about in this paper, such as divorce, which was taboo and something um, previous legal aids did not do for So you write in the paper that LSPs ensured that families entitled to benefits could get them. So say more about that. How did LSPs provide access to benefits that, in theory at least, people already had? So one way to think of legal services and having these lawyers is that they're providing individual representation. So you can think of an individual having all sorts of issues And they say, well, you should have access to AFDC and say, well, I was denied. And then the question is why, um, if you are eligible for such benefits. But something like that on an individual case by case would take a long time to see like these large numbers in which we we find as it relates to increases in AFDC. So another way to kind of think of what's going on is that the program itself is using the judicial system to provide oversight over local bureaucracies. And this was something that was like, a mandate in that call for the civilian perspective into the war on poverty, right? Providing oversight over what they felt was government bureaucracies that had monopoly power over the poor, right? And so we could think of this as it relates to public goods like policing. Like in theory, the police should come when you call, right? That's what they're supposed to do. But in practice, that may not happen. So as it relates to AFDC or having access to welfare, individuals may be eligible, but they are denied based on the discretion of local bureaucrats or uh, caseworkers. So how did legal services get benefits? Well, first of all, they simply let people know that they were eligible, right? They provided pamphlets and guidelines about what are the criteria for which particular programs you 
uh, qualify for. They work with local community organizations to help individuals actually apply and fill out these applications. Therefore, fixing errors on the applicant side. And then the, the, probably the main or the biggest impact that they had on, as far as gaining access to welfare was they fixed errors on uh, the welfare office side, right? If they're using tactics or just basically ignoring right applicants, not providing proper feedback, uh, wrongly dismissing applications. In that sense, what they would do is they would go and find out these mistakes and then go back through other cases to see who else was denied based on these similar mistakes. And, and by doing such, not only do they help those individuals, but they change the way that we welfare office interacts with the poor and with particular applicants. And then the other thing, and so all these things are, are, are related to gaining access. Um, but the other thing they did was actually represent individuals that they was that were possibly going to be removed from welfare through these fair hearing cases in which um, you have the opportunity to discuss what's going on with welfare offices before you are removed from welfare roles. And so in this case, legal services are not going to only have right, a direct impact, but they're also going to have this indirect impact by providing information as well as, if they're doing this, reducing the stigma associated with uh, seeking public assistance. So this sounds like an important program, and it's, it was obviously you know started in the 1960s. So it was around for a while. Before this paper, what did we know about the effects of LSPs? Well, in the law profession, we, we know a lot. So the Legal Service Program, or the Neighborhood Legal Service Program, as it's officially called, existed from 1965 to roughly 1975. In 1975, the program went through a restructuring and became the Legal Service Corporation. I mean, it still existed, but by this point, they kind of understood what the successes were, what the failures were, and kind of how to make this program not as controversial. So it still exists to this day, just with different mandates. Uh, but in the, in the law profession, there's tons of things, that, that tons of, of research in this area. Earl Johnson just recently, a few years ago, wrote a three-volume book on the history of the legal service program. But the literature, as um, far as in the law profession, clarifies a couple of things. One, it's apparent that these legal service programs worked on women empowerment um, through divorces and access to public benefits, as well as domestic abuse, and as well as children's rights, like Hillary Clinton. She had her start in like one of these legal service programs. Second thing that falls out of, out of the readings is that the expansion to access to welfare benefits basically getting benefits to, for those individuals who are categorically eligible um, is like a huge part. There's basically books written on the Supreme Court cases uh, that took place that legal service lawyers were involved. And, and so the, the, the results that we find in this paper is just makes sense going into what we see in, in the literature and, and law. And then lastly, uh, what's, what's in the literature is that legal services worked on community organizing, dealing with issues of policing and anti-rioting. That stuff is, is here and there. It's a little bit more subtle throughout the, the literature, but it shows up again and again as it relates to what legal services were doing. Now, as it relates to empirical work, there's not much there. We know very little of the magnitude of these effects. And so this paper is one of the few papers that kind of empirically study the legal service program and provides you know, outcomes related to the things that we see being discussed in a lot of the literature and law. So you're focusing in this paper on the effects of LSPs on family structure and welfare participation. So what are the various ways that we might expect LSPs to affect these outcomes? 
you've alluded to a bunch of this already, but let's just kind of lay out all of these potential mechanisms in one place. Yeah, so the legal service program, at least based on the on the reading and thinking about these things in economic theory, is that legal service programs should have, have a direct effect on um, divorce. Like one of the main criticisms of the program was it was seen as a divorce mill. But in general, what legal services is doing is that it's dealing with uh, pent up demand for divorce as well as lowering the cost for the poor to actually get a divorce. And so we should expect an immediate increase in divorces until this demand is met. And then we may see something like a tear off in this effect, similar to what Wolfer's show in his papers as it relates to unilateral divorce. Secondly, legal service programs should have a direct effect on welfare take up. And this is done by increasing the number of individuals who apply by making the language plain. Um, increasing the probability of success uh, by dealing with illegal restrictions and also reducing the likelihood individuals are removed from welfare roles through unfair hearing cases. So both of these will ha- these effects will be a direct impact of legal services on welfare. But there also will be indirect effects, right? If you increase the number of individuals who are divorced, um, it will likely lead to an increase in the AFDC take-up. Um, if AFDC takes-up decreases the cost of being single, we can see changes in marriage rates and also see changes in non-marital birth rates. In addition, um, this is not even dealing with changes in culture or changes in stigma around divorce and welfare take-up and non-marital births um, due to these parameters changing over time due to the presence of legal services. And just to clarify for listeners, AFDC is aid for families and dependent children. Am I getting it right? Yes, and that program existed until the mid-90s and changed to a TANF to instances for needy families. So as you and Andrew um, started working on this project, what were the main challenges that you had to overcome in order to measure the causal effects of the legal services programs that had been discussed in all of those law papers? Are these mostly data challenges or mostly identification challenges or both? Both. Uh, <laughs> one of the reasons why this is one of the first empirical uh, papers on the legal service program is A, right, core data or individual caseload data from these particular law firms are, are not available, right? These things are, are confidential. So how do you measure the impact of legal services? This is kind of all throughout some of the, the, the work in, in law about how do we exactly measure this? And so what we had to do was we had to digitize a bunch of data. So we had to digitize the grant information for individuals who receive um, legal service grants. And this came from the National Archives of Community Action Files. And that gave us, you know, the grant number, the grantees, the organization that received the grant, the location and intended purposes, as well as the date the grant was issued, which we was able to identify when a location um, first received a legal service grant. Uh, we also had to digitize the divorce data at the county level, divorce and marriage data. We had to digitize the non-marital birth rate data for a subset of counties because it's not available for every county, which we found in published tables. And then we also digitized AFDC caseload um, data. So all of this took a while. So we were working on digitizing this this data while uh, both me and Andrew were in uh, PC programs. So it was a, a long time coming. So those are some of the main hurdles as it relates to what are the outcomes and how do we get the data? And we have to digitize all of our outcome variables, basically. The second thing is that we have to deal with the fact that the assignment of these legal service programs were non-random. Um, 
they, they, it wasn't necessarily that they were trying that 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 the legal service, the individuals over the legal service program was worried about divorce and AFDC. Uh, they were actually worried about riots um, during this time. It probably was one of the main reasons why. I, this program and other war and poverty programs to kind of rest out to kind of deal with the civil unrest that were going on in urban areas. So when these legal service programs started, like the sheer number of divorces was a surprise to some of these programs that they were actually dealing with this instead of dealing with some of the needs of the poor and which motivated them to do the work. But because of this, a lot of the programs were um, went only to urban areas. Uh, so large cities, and B was really uh, rolled out quickly. Uh, most of the places are funded between 1966 and 1967. Um, so what we do is a difference of difference analysis, taking an event study approach where we like to see how divorce, AFDC take up, and now marital births evolves before uh, a place receives a legal service program and then compare to see what happens after a legal service program arrives, but we don't have much variation. So we're going to identify off parallel trends assumption between treated and untreated places uh, in which we can test directly for in an event study analysis. We can see how the trends in these outcome variable interests are evolving before um, legal services uh, arrive. So we're not necessarily really identifying off the variation, but we're identifying off uh, off off of location, places that are treated and not, and not treated. The other issue that we have is saying, okay, we know that we don't have that much uh, variation and we know that the assignment is non-random and trying to think of what is the proper control group. And so we do a couple of things to kind of to, to create a, a, a control group. In a sense, we, can, we try to get, uh, we get these urban by city pairs and state by year pairs so we're comparing Cities that are treated within the same state under the same level of urbanicity is one way to think about it to try to achieve some 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 balance. Uh, the second thing that we do is what we try to do is redistrib- redistribute the, the weight across the control group in a way to provide a balanced control group off pretreatment characteristics by using inverse propensity scores. Uh, and, and so what we do is we we use these two two, two control groups to kind of see. Are we getting different results or are our results robust across uh, these two specifications? Okay, so just to, to clarify that a little bit more. So you've got, got two comparison groups here. One is comparing to other places in the same state. And you might want to do that because the states, states have you know, a whole bunch of laws that are going to affect all the cities and counties in the state the same way. And so that's a very common approach. But this other thing that you do, which was really interesting, was... And, and I think different from what a lot of papers do is try to find other places that look similar to the city that got the LSP somewhere else in the country, not restricting on state. And saying like basically using this propensity score, like predicting the likelihood based on the characteristics that you get an LSP and then comparing places with and without the programs. Am I getting that right? Yeah. So in the, in the first case, we're like comparing Los Angeles to... Oakland and San Diego, right? Large mm-hmm. cities in California. Um, and in the second scenario, we're going to compare rather large cities that were not treated to in different areas. So they could be all over the country to cities that um, were treated, basically giving um, those cities more weight than before. Great. And I want to talk a little bit more about the data because I know we do have students, including grad students that listen and 
I think this part of the process is always a little bit of a mystery until you find yourself in it. <laughs> so you guys digitized all of these data files. Where did they live? So these are paper files somewhere? How did you find them? These are published tables uh, from either the census or, census or the vital statistics data. Um, and this is the divorce and marriage data that come from vital statistics um, files. Um, in which they published uh, the, published these tables for county, state, and metros. And so I think the state stuff is digitized because that was used in um, Wolfer's paper, in 2007 paper, I believe. Mm-hmm. But the county data was not digitized. And so uh, we found the, uh, the published tables and was able to digitize those data. Uh, same thing as it relates to non-marital birth rates. And AFDC data, that was also um, not uh, available far as uh, digitized. And so we had to go find the published tables and then um, go through uh, digitizing those as well. So you guys are like standing in a scanner. Uh, and how, how did this actually work? Oh, so, so, yeah, so, <laughs> so far, so uh, so Andrew digitized the non-marital births in the uh, uh, AFDC data, so he can speak to those. Okay, For right. I did the divorce and non-marital, um, the divorce and the marriage uh, uh, data, mm-hmm. and basically that was basically getting the uh, going on the library, get the books uh, where they were published, and then running through a couple of years coding them up myself for just a few years. Um, just to kind of get an a, a approximation of the time um, and then doing it again to make sure I was correct and comparing uh, the two. And, uh, and then once I kind of got an idea about the time, how long it takes to code up a particular year, I applied for uh, some, some funding at the University of Michigan to have it digitized. So in a sense, at that point, then I kind of I scanned the tables um, and were able to send it off to a third party to digitize that data and also to have it double checked for accuracy. Yeah, these are the the glamorous uh, parts of the job that most non-academics don't get to see. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, so just tell us one more time what the outcome variables are that you're most interested in here. Yeah, so the outcome variables uh, that we're most interested in are, are going to be divorce and AFDC take up or participation. Um, these are the two outcomes that just fall out of the reading. So if you knew nothing on legal services and you was to pick up a book, those are the two things that would be just the most uh, apparent that legal services impact. Uh, and then the third outcome that we're interested in is the non-marital births, which would be this indirect effect of legal, of legal services on, on family structure. So those are the three outcome variables of interest. We also look at marriage rates in general and also general fertility rates as well to kind of see what's driving our effects. Okay. So let's talk about the results. What do you find is the effect of the establishment of a legal services program in a community on divorce rates? Um, We find that the legal service program had an immediate increase on uh, divorce rates in uh, treated places. Um, This is the average. We find that basically after three years, legal services lead to basically anywhere between 63 to 86 additional divorces and treated place amongst poor um, women, we find that this, uh, uh, this effect is temporary in the sense that it increases over the first three years, is persistent over the next three to six years, and then decrease and basically goes to zero. Um, and so 
what we argue is that in the sense that legal services is dealing with this pent-up demand for divorce um, that occurs when you lower the cost and then you you find that out that there's a series of, of marriages that will be impacted due to making um, divorce or lawyers accessible uh, to them, which was an outcome that may have not have been uh, previously available to them before. And then how did LSPs affect welfare participation? Uh, legal service had a huge immediate increase on welfare participation. We find that legal services increased the participation uh, rate basically about 6.5 to 10.3 additional cases per 1,000 women. This results somewhere between 250,000 to 400,000 additional cases by um, 1984, so between 1965 and 1984, which basically explains 14 to 26% of the increase in overall cases during this time period. And then finally, how did LSPs affect the share of births to unmarried women? Legal services was also here had a huge immediate increase on non-marital uh, birth rates. We find that over the first three to five years, we see a 14 to 20 percent increase over uh, the baseline rate or the previous average uh, at the at the time of treatment. Or basically, what we, we find is that legal services explain up to like 36 percent of the overall change in non-marital births uh, over the next 10 to 15 years following the establishment of the legal service program. Okay. And then you also consider why non-marital births increased. That is, was it due to more children being born or because fewer women were married or both of those things? So what did you find there? So we're looking at family structure. And so we know that there's a, we see that there's an increase in divorce and we see that there's an increase in AFDC participation rates. This is all, this also is aligned with what was in literature as it relates to what legal services were doing. But as we look at kind of what's going on with family structure, single parent households, and we see that there's an increase in non-marital births, the question is, what is the underlying mechanism here, right? Are individuals making different decisions as far as being married, right? Like, or what we say as far as changes in shotgun weddings. And so what we find is that gen- the general fertility rate um, is not necessarily changing. We even find evidence that the general fertility rate is decreasing over time. Um, what we do find is that there is an immediate decrease uh, in marriage rates over time. And so basically what, what we're seeing, at least, at least what the results are showing, that individuals are changing their decision to enter into marriage once an uh, individual or, or woman might find out that, that, that she is pregnant. Um, so instead of, of, of being married to someone who may be a bad match, they're deciding to uh, not um, enter into that agreement with their partner. And so these were all effects that changed a lot during this period. And you mentioned a couple of these magnitudes, but just to, to reiterate, so based on your estimates, how much of the changes in divorces and welfare receipt and non-marital births during this, this time period can be explained by the implementation of LSPs? Well, for divorce, we have this home-shaped response. And so if we kind of look at what the difference that we see between 1960s and 1970 and the increase we see in divorces, we're uh, upper bound estimate is somewhere closer to 50% of the increase that we see in divorce for poor women. But that's because in the 1970 census, we see who's currently divorced, not the individuals who are ever divorced. And so our estimates might be uh, too large as it relates to uh, how much of the overall increase in divorce that we see. As it relates to AFDC participation, um, depending on the specification that we use, we see somewhere between 18 and 31% of 
we explain at least 18 to 31% of the overall change in AFDC um, take up. We do this by estimating the counterfactual number of cases and comparing it to the actual cases that we see. Um, same thing with non-marital birth rates. We estimate roughly a 36%. Uh, we, that we explain 36% of the overall change in non-marital birth. So those are big effects. So how do those effects compare with the number of cases that LSPs were actually handling at this time? Is it plausible that they could have affected this many families' outcomes? Well, as it relates to AFDC, so there's tons of literature that shows in the 1960s that there was a lot of people who was eligible for for AFDC and not take and not participating in AFDC. So the, just the increase by loosening some of these restrictions, basically a lot of local restrictions. Yes, the easiest way to kind of see this is that. We know, we at least have some examples of the volume of cases that particular legal service programs uh, took on in a given year based on some of the studies. And so, for instance, in the 1968, legal service programs had roughly, uh, a typical legal service program had roughly um, over 280,000 cases, right? And so what we find that legal services in a given year uh, across all their treated places led to basically 17,000 divorces. And so basically, we kind of say the 200,000 cases that we're seeing, roughly 20% of those were for divorce. And family issues, we can say roughly 30 to 40% of the divorce cases that they actually handled ended up in, in divorce. And, and, and like I, I think I said this earlier, the program was was overwhelmed with divorces early on. And it, it grew... The most of the criticism as it relates to the legal service program in general has to do with three things. One, the number of divorces that took place. In a sense, one of the main arguments is that if your goal is to help individuals get out of poverty, you're not helping them by getting divorced, right? And the counter argument is that you don't understand, you don't know the current living situation that which this person is in, and therefore it's not up to you know someone to dictate what is the proper uh, uh, environment in which they should uh, cohabitate or live under. Uh, the second issue that was problematic for the legal service program, which which also somewhat discussed, is that the suing governments on behalf of public assistance or public programs, in the sense that by Doing this, you're increasing the public expenditures in general, and this is problematic for a lot of states and a lot of governors. All right, and so there's a lot of pushback of legal services there. And then the third problem with the controversy associated with legal services are the riots that are current going on during this time, and legal service lawyers' involvement in this. But as it relates to this particular paper of uh, divorces, this is totally in line with at least the number of cases that they that they saw. Um, that we can pull from the literature. So you, of course, conduct a whole bunch of additional checks to convince yourselves and your readers that your estimates represent the effects of LSPs and not some other confounding factors or like other policies or events during this period. So talk us through some of those, maybe a couple of your favorites <laughs> and, what, and what you find. Okay, yeah. So uh, yeah, we do a, a lot of robustness checks. <laughs> but uh, there's a couple of things, right? So we're worried about the variation in timing, as I, I stated earlier, majority of these places are funded in 1966 and 1967. And so one of the things that we worry is that we're just capturing something that happened in 1966 and 1967. We don't know what it is. That's what we're capturing. Um, and so what we do is we drop um, places that are treated in those years. And our results still hold for divorce, 
AFDC and non-marital births. Um, the second issue is that we do all these things to find to try to find a control group, right? We do the state by year fixed effects, urban by year fixed effects. We do this uh, reweighting um, technique to try to find a proper control group, and and so one way to kind of think of it, whether well, proper control group might be just to use the places that are treated, um, but just use them before they're actually treated. So we do. A, a robustness check where we just use the treated cities that haven't been treated yet. So they're going to be treated much later as a counterfactual. Um, and there we do still find that legal services have a, a, a large impact on roughly the same size that we estimated in the paper. And then the other thing that we, we definitely have to worry about um, is that there's a lot of things going on um, in the 1960s. Uh, there's the Vietnam War. There's protests around the Vietnam War. There's the civil rights movement. There's women liberation movements, right? There's riots. There's black migration. There's a lot of things going on in the 60s. And so what we try our best to do is kind of, what can we do to control for these different things? So we try to control for other war on poverty programs. We try to control for riots that occur in these places. And we also try to control for uh, local or political advocacy for welfare rights. And we do that and we still, um, our estimates are at least robust to um, including all of these other things. And then the last thing that I think is important, especially as it relates to divorce, is that divorce laws are changing during this time. And one of the, one of the interesting things that, that kind of goes along with this paper is that we do find that divorce laws matter. So we're not just saying that these things are robust to everything. Right? But we, we do know that when the, where it's difficult to get divorces, right? divorces are not occurring, and where it's easy to get divorces, a lot of divorces are, are, are occurring through legal service programs. So not only are our results robust to a, a lot of different things, but they also make sense to what's going on during this time period as well. So the LSPs are actually like interacting with those laws. So yeah. yeah. So bigger picture here, and you talked about you know, how these are programs are kind of controversial and, and especially because they're increasing divorce rates. So do your results imply that overall LSPs were good or bad? How do you think about the effects on the well-being of people in these communities? Well, we say very little in the paper purposely about well-being. <laughs> and then mainly one, because we can't actually like estimate well-being, are you better off or worse off? That's another paper, uh, in my opinion. But what we can say is that for individuals, right, this is services for the first time. So this is not the story that you get, that individuals are changing their behavior based on the sentences that, that exists, right? This is that there is a change in your budget constraint due to legal services changing the restrictions as it relates to access to the public goods or to, in this case, public assistance. So if, if someone is in a circumstance where they need aid and they can't get aid, once they get, a, get aid, we, can, we you know, can see that they're clearly in a better situation than they were before. But I think as it relates to well-being, what most people are curious about is, are the kids better off, right? This is where it comes down to the conversation about family structure and the impacts that it relates to outcomes of the children. And we don't do that in this analysis. But what we're, we are looking at an expansion of the program for individuals who did not have access. And one can, you know, make the, the claim that if individuals who are denied benefits have access to benefits, they should be better off. Then the question comes, are they better off in the 90s or in the 80s? Yeah. That's another question. Yeah. 
which hopefully someone, if not you all, (laughs) will will look at. (laughs) So going back to our earlier conversation about how LSPs provided de facto access to benefits that were already on the books, so the rest of the quote that I read earlier was that LSPs ensured that families entitled to benefits could get them, which exposed poor families to welfare incentives for the first time. And I found that super interesting. Uh, I, I take it that other studies have found that people didn't seem to respond to the incentives put in place by welfare policies as much as economic theory would predict. And so you all, I think, are suggesting that this is because without access to legal services, those policies didn't actually change the incentives faced by people, the people they targeted. So one, I wanted to just see if that's what you are arguing, if that's your take. And then more broadly, what do your results tell us about how the courts and access to representation and other legal services interact with policy? So the, the research on, on welfare and family structure is mixed, right? We have results that, I mean, empirical research that says there is an impact on family structures. There's research that says there's not an impact or much of an impact. And our results suggest that Changes in the ease in which the, that poor women can actually receive um, benefits kind of deal with this lack of evidence that we may find or the contradictory evidence that we may find. And this is partly due to the fact that the cross-section analysis, as I stated previously, there are tons of things going on in the 1960s and 1970s. And it's, it, in doing a cross-section analysis, right, you're, you're capturing all of these other different things that are going on. And then in the panel setting, there's not much variation in welfare generosity over time. You do have specific changes here and there, but it makes it difficult to kind of really identify these impacts. And this is not necessarily me criticizing or saying anything about the literature. This is what the literature, the papers that find these results are saying. And so, I mean, one, we do find that it is an expansion of access to legal services and that these lawyers are just uh, changing um, who has access um, to AFDC and welfare during these times. Meaning that if you change the benefits, and but you don't change the perceived access to these benefits, you won't find a, a change in take up. But if you actually change access or individuals' perceived ability to be successful with uh, obtaining um, public assistance, then you will see um, this, which we document empirically and show historically that legal services drastically changed the situation. They ensured that families entitled to benefits could actually get them and exposed families to welfare incentives in one sense for uh, uh, the first time, which legal scholars argue would not be the case if legal services itself did not exist. Now, as it relates to Representation and, and 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 policy, um, in a sense, uh, uh, I think the architects of this program had that exact thought in mind: is that we really want to use this program, um, or the legal service program, as oversight of local bureaucracies. In a sense, that the war on poverty um, is is the ideal is that you have these professionals come into poor communities and almost dictate, you know, the programs and provide these programs and, and provide them these tools in order to uh, fight against poverty or the climb of the economic ladder, ladder, right? But in a sense, what they were saying is that, look, there are certain things that the poor needs and that the poor needs to articulate. And by providing them lawyers, they can articulate exactly what they need through the judicial system. And the legal service program did that, right? In the sense, these young lawyers went into these law firms and tried to help individuals with tenant-landlord disputes 
And a lot of the times, right, especially since the poor often felt victimized by the judicial system, they go to these lawyers too late. But they say, well, there's other benefits that are available to you. And when they say, no, they're not. Well, this is something that can actually be addressed, right, in a sense, by providing oversight over local bureaucracies. You can make sure that public goods are actually being distributed in the way they should be. So moving on from this particular paper, is there any other recent research about access to legal services and how it affects communities or individuals? Yeah, so uh, there's research by Pedroza who kind of look at legal services and immigrants' communities is showing how having legal services increases demand for bureaucracies assigned to protect these individuals, especially as it relates to consumer fraud. Then I also have uh, a couple of papers on legal services looking at uh, the program's impact on demands for policing, basically showing that um, legal services increase the reporting of crime, um, kind of uh, not necessarily take a stance on what actually happens to crime. But one of the things that these legal service programs did is that they sued welfare agencies, but they also sued local police departments during this time. And the idea is that you bring um, uh, public officials, uh, police departments heads to the tables and you discuss proper policing um, with the goal of decreasing the likelihood of these violent demonstrations that were occurring in the 60s. So in a sense, uh, that paper at least shows that there was some response uh, to changes um, in policing due to legal services. And then I have a paper with uh, Rob Gillisau that we look at legal services as an anti-rioting program and the impact that it has on um, property values in Black communities. And kind of we show that legal services being an anti-rioting program reduce the damages from rioting, and which is evidenced by property values in places, rioting places that had legal services versus places where riots occurred and did not have legal services. So what are the policy implications of all of this work? Does this mean that we should be expanding access to legal services today? So two fronts. So a lot of stuff been happening as far as with protests and I've been approached with the legal service program. And then also the same thing can be said as it relates to legal services and family um, structure. It's hard to say that a policy in the 1960s would have the same impact as today. For, and for instance, like our research shows that cash welfare uh, restricted to single parents when recipients have access to it, it affects the family structure. But our findings are not consistent with the story that when families will change, right, family structure would change if you become less or more generous as far as welfare uh, benefits. So we can't speak anything to should you increase or decrease the generosity of public assistance. And therefore, it's kind of hard to say what legal services will have, impact they will have today in the sense that by changing a lot of the laws and eligibility requirements, especially those that were deemed unconstitutional, it's kind of hard to say that you can bring back some eligibility requirements and practices that were unconstitutional as uh, far as a particular policy. And same thing as it relates to uh, dealing with uh, police and, and rioting, it's kind of hard to say that um, legal services will have the same impact that it had in the 1960s. Now, it is true, this program still exists uh, today. Right? There are legal services offices in every major city uh, across the country are not necessarily involved as many things that they were involved in the 1960s. In the 1960s, it was purely experimental, right? They did not understand that 
you know, divorce would be a main uh, uh, issue. They're not going to this understanding that they will sue welfare offices initially, right? These things came out as easy targets for them once they kind of understood the needs um, of the poor. Um, and so it's, it's kind of hard to make that jump far as the policy of legal services today. But what we can say is that legal services did to some of these outcomes that we care about that we study, right? How we, there's tons of literature on, on family um, structure and AFDC, and we do show that legal services played a role in changing family structure and those dynamics in the 1960s and 70s. So what's the research frontier here? What are the next big questions in this area that you and others will be thinking about in the years ahead? There's a couple of things that um, one is the the well-being question that you asked earlier. So uh, one of the things is just looking at outcomes of children uh, in these communities that are impacted by the legal services to see if they are are better or worse off, or if they have better um, or worse economic outcomes um, that we may care about, so that we can say something um, about you know if individuals are um, better or worse off due to the presence of legal services. The other uh, areas here as it relates to legal services being a form of oversight, I mean, kind of actually seeing if legal services maybe change police use of force, the sisters uh, actually going in and suing local police departments, uh, fighting or advocating for um, changes in police practices. Do we see changes in um, civilian deaths due to policing? And then the, the third area in which I think legal services, or this research, can be very useful is tenant landlord disputes. So the history of legal services is that the program started in 1965, so forth and so on. They had a lot of divorces that cases that they took on and they sued welfare offices and police departments. Well, that's for the first 10 years of the program. But by 1974, 1975, tenant landlord disputes was the number one issue as it relates to the type of cases they were taking on. Uh, and some legitimate question has to do with uh, housing security and legal services playing a role in making sure individuals um, have uh, uh, adequate living conditions. My guest today has been Jamie Cunningham from the University of Memphis. Jamie, thanks so much for doing this. Oh, thank you for having me. You can find links to all the research we discussed today on our website, probablecausation.com. You can also subscribe to the show there or wherever you get your podcasts to make sure you don't miss a single episode. Big thanks to Emergent Ventures for supporting the show. And thanks also to our Patreon subscribers. This show is listener supported. So if you enjoyed the podcast, then please consider contributing via Patreon. You can find a link on our website. Our sound engineer is John Kerr with production assistance from Haley Greasaver. Our music is by Werner and our logo was designed by Carrie Throckmorton. Thanks for listening and I'll talk to you in two weeks.